I feel like the information pamphlets that we hand to people are so technical and sterile, right? Like they're it's medical writing. And God, the NICU is just not, I mean, it is technical and sterile, right? Like there's a lot of equipment, there's a lot of tech, but the NICU is not technical and sterile. And it is its own unique place in the hospital that's not like any other place. And I think that that can be reflected through podcasts and people sharing their stories about the NICU where, no, you don't wish anybody to be there. But if you have to be there, here's how we can wrap it in a way that's not technical and, and sterile and is filled with hope and love. And that, so that's what I'm trying to accomplish. Welcome to the Mighty Littles podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Mighty Littles podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I am excited to welcome Maddie. She is the voice and the power behind early cervical opening, and she is here on the podcast today to talk to us. Maddie, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. My name is Maddie Mihalik. Uh I am the founder of Early Cervical Opening. I am also on the board of the Incompetent Cervix Awareness Campaign. I have my master's in communication studies, and I'm the mom of two, one preemie and one full-term baby. So Lydia was born at 25 weeks gestation after I was on bed rest for five days. So Lydia was 25 weeks and your other baby was born at term. Was your other baby before or after your preemie? So the premature birth was first, full term second. Okay, perfect. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about your pregnancy and delivery and how how you ended up in the hospital at 25 weeks? I got pregnant with Lydia. My, my at the time, fiance and I, we were very young. Um, I was 21 and it was my first pregnancy and it seemed like everything was going smoothly through the first and second trimester other than terrible nausea, vomiting. And then in my late second trimester, I started experiencing strange lower back pain that I still have a hard time articulating. It was like an ache that would sometimes not go away. And I called the nurse triage line on one occasion that it was bothering me so much. And they recommended a warm shower and Tylenol. And I continued to experience this back pain and I felt that this was just not right in my gut. It felt like something was wrong. And I remembered I received a handout from my OBGYN sometime during my first trimester listing different symptoms to watch out for. And on there 
was incompetent cervix, which I had never heard of before in my life. And it said one of these symptoms could possibly be back pain. So at my next appointment, I told my provider, I was in a rotating practice. So I saw different providers almost every time I went in. I told this provider about the back pain I was experiencing and you know that it just didn't feel right. And I was told, you know, many women experience back pain in pregnancy. It's totally normal unless you're having other symptoms. And at that point I wasn't. And so I said, well, okay, I guess this is just a typical pregnancy and everything is fine. And then a few weeks after that appointment, so around 24 weeks gestation, I woke up at 6 a.m. with strange feelings in my stomach. It felt like small tightenings and I was like, okay, are these contractions? They were not very painful. They were very small. And I noticed they were happening regularly. And I was like, this must be contractions. And I called the on-call nurse line and they were like, okay, well, you're really early. So it's probably just Braxton Hicks, but come in and get checked out just in case. And I woke up my husband and felt pretty silly saying, hey, I think I'm having contractions. We have to go to the hospital. (laughs) And, you know, kept feeling them the whole drive there. Thought I might be going crazy. Walked myself into uh, the waiting room. They hooked me up to the monitors. I wasn't in any, you know, visible pain. But sure enough, the monitors started showing these small contractions. The doctor on call came in and he was like, you know, we're going to check your cervix, see what's going on. And he didn't even have to say anything. I could tell by the look on his face that something was very wrong. And he said, you are three to four centimeters dilated, fully effaced, water's bulging. We need to stabilize you and move you uptown to the hospital with a level four NICU. And things start to get fuzzy. They put me on mag and terbutaline and all the good stuff to um, stop labor and prolong the pregnancy and put me in an ambulance and shipped me up to the hospital with the uh, level four NICU. And I stayed there on bed rest for five days. And during that time, I had many different folks come in to check on me, including one MFM who did a transvaginal ultrasound. As he was leaving, he said to me, we can prevent this next time. And then just kind of walked out. And so I'm left sitting, yeah. So I'm left sitting there like, what can we prevent next time, number one? Number two, I'm not thinking about next time, I'm thinking about the fetus that I'm trying to keep in me growing right now. And I was very 
confused by that. And it was never mentioned to me again what exactly this was that we could prevent. Uh, my official diagnosis after Lydia was born was unexplained premature labor. And so uh, on the fifth day of hospital bed rest, my water broke. I was fully dilated and out came Lydia, two pounds. She was crying. Uh, I had received both rounds of steroid shots with her. So she went straight to the CPAP. Yeah, that was our introduction to the NICU. I did a lot of uh, Google research on my bed rest time on what to expect in the NICU. Yes. And, and what did you what did you find? Was it reassuring or not reassuring? I would say a little of both. So I went not only to academic resources, but also a lot of uh, personal narratives from sites like Baby Center. Mm-hmm. Um, I found groups of micro preemies and just, you know, folks that had had babies around the gestational age. I knew Lydia was coming and it was, you know, kind of all over the place. Some people had really relatively easy stays, or I should say uneventful. Uh, Others, you know, left the hospital without their baby. Um, I definitely relied on statistics to guide me in reading those stories to figure out, you know, which one of these are rare and which one of these are more common. What is, where are we going to fall? And it was reassuring to me that the providers in the hospital we were at were actually giving um, better outcomes than what I was reading online. So that made me feel more hopeful. But I also think during those five days, reflecting back, I think I was doing a lot of distancing to the pregnancy and just, there's a lot of uncertainty here. I need to protect myself because I don't know what's going to happen. And it's not a guarantee that she will come home with us. Yeah, I think that's, very normal. And I, as a physician, can see that happen. Sometimes when I'm doing prenatal consults, everybody takes that news just a little bit differently. Some people really rely on the statistics, right? Like, tell me the number. Is it 24% or 25%? Is it 80% or 81%, like that 1% is going to make a big difference. And to them, it does make a big difference. But for me, it's 1% and you have one baby. And so you don't get 80% or 20%. You either have one outcome or you have another outcome. And there's a million different outcomes that we're talking about, right? So there's survival and death, but there's also... ROP and not ROP and IVH and not IVH and cerebral palsy and not cerebral palsy, right? So it's not one statistic number, but in each one of those categories, you're kind of all or nothing. Outcomes for 25-weekers have gotten better and better and better. And 
you know, when I first started working, 25 weekers, we weren't always super optimistic. And I'm much more optimistic now with 25 week moms because the majority of the time, things go really well. The majority of the time. But there are still that small percentage, like you said, where families don't get to take their baby home. And when I'm doing a prenatal consult and when you're the mom receiving that prenatal consult, it is literally impossible for me to tell you which one you're going to be in. And so as you're reading through all that stuff, you do have to look at the statistics and know which way is more likely, but also in some ways be prepared for both outcomes because you don't know which way it's going to go. And I think that's an impossible place to be. And everybody copes with that difference. Some people are very distancing. Some people are full in the denial. That's not going to be me. We're going to be fine. Like, and, and, and I can watch it happen um, and then watch how that then processes over those next couple of weeks as things start to settle out and we figure out how your particular baby is going to do. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear you say that and just the perspective you must have watching these parents navigate. And for me, it took, you know, a good at least one to two years of processing to be like, okay, <laughs> this is what happened. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious because you talk about getting information online and now with the internet and with social media and with, you know, any number of, of social networking type of sites and websites, there there is so much information. How did you square the information that you were reading with the information that the physicians were telling you? Like, uh, what was it like to have information coming from both ends. Yeah. So this was in 2012 and I feel like the social media presence for, or at least surrounding premature births um, is much different than it was then. So I just want to preface that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But like, like I said, baby center was kind of like the hub, at least from where I sat of where that information lay. Uh, I think that the research I was doing on my own helped drive questions that I had for providers. It helped give me a baseline to say, okay, this is what I've read. Is that going to hold up here? Or what do you think of this? Oftentimes, I feel like what I was reading lined up with what I was hearing, uh, except for like the example I gave um, of the outcomes being more favorable in the particular hospital we were in. I also realized during that time how lucky we were to have the level of care that we did and realize that, you know, there were hospitals out there that would even have tried to save Lydia. Um, So I think, you know, you have to engage a lot of critical thinking skills when you're doing that research on your own and not take things for face value and just use it to uh, 
ask questions and figure out what is the truth for your situation. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think it's, I think that's really a key point to drive home, which is what is the, what is the truth for your situation? Because I don't care what anybody says that they think they're going to do or how they're going to take the news or how they're going to react to taking that news or it well, if I was in the NICU, this is what I would do. Or if I delivered at 23 weeks, this is what I would do. We can have all the opinions in the world, but I think it's very different when you're sitting in that bed and, and you are the only person that can make that decision for you and your baby and your family. You are the captain of that ship. You are the best person to make those decisions and only you can make those decisions. Um, So I think that's a really key point to drive home. So Lydia is now nine years old. And so you've had nine years to kind of process through this birth and delivery and her NICU hospital course. Can you give our listeners kind of a snapshot of what her NICU course looked like? Sure. So one of the ways that I am able to remember anything that happened during her NICU stay was uh, because of a beads journal that we kept. Uh, Beads of Courage was a program that was in the NICU that you got a bead for every day your baby was in the NICU, for every procedure, like an IV an ultrasound, surgery, anything. So this is what I have to reference now, believe it or not, to remember what happened when she was there. But isn't that nice for people who are right in the NICU right now listening to this podcast while they're doing kangaroo care with their 25-weeker who's five weeks old thinking, I'm never going to forget a moment of this. This is never going to go away. It's going to be in the forefront. I'm never going to just be able to be a mom to my kid. To hear you say, now you have to go back and look at that journal because that's not everything that you're parenting and everything that your daughter is. So I just need to point that out, you guys. It, it is, the NICU is, you know, you can get through it and you can can manage that. Yes. If you would have told me that I would forget most of these things, without a reference guide, while I was sitting in that NICU, I would not have believed you. Yeah. (laughs) So Lydia was there for a total of 91 days. She came home before her due date, which uh, exceeded my expectations of what this journey was going to look like. She had a relatively smooth stay uh, she had no surgeries. She had, she did have ROP stage one that self-resolved. The beginning felt a little rocky. She had a lot of aspirations with her feeds. So it took her a while to tolerate feeds. Um, she needed quite a few blood transfusions, which is pretty typical from what I understand. So even though it felt quite traumatic as her parents to watch that happen, that was definitely kind of par for the course. 
Um, can I, sorry, can I interrupt you for one second? So I wanted to say, uh, because you mentioned the blood transfusions and how that feels really traumatic, you know, I have a lot of people that don't know what a blood transfusion entails. And uh, while it feels like this big, huge procedure and it feels very traumatic and your baby needs a blood transfusion and oh my gosh, it's actually just a peripheral IV or, or a central line if your baby already has one. And it is fluid blood that runs into a peripheral IV. So while it feels traumatic and dramatic and like this big, huge deal, it's actually just a peripheral IV from a what does the baby feel from it standpoint. But but I think that's a really common thing for parents is that these transfusions feel like they're a big deal or they don't understand quite how they're given. But that's that is how they're given just through a peripheral IV. Yeah, I think part of learning how to be a NICU parent was just this perspective taking and realizing, okay, big picture, this is not the end of the world. (laughs) This is what needs to happen for her to, you know, be healthy. Um, So it's that whole new normal. For the first week, we were taught how to uh, appropriately touch and interact with Lydia, firm touches. Um, We would hold her little hand. We uh, got to change her diaper, I believe, that first week. We got to take her temperature when we were there for her cares. I was pumping, so that helped me feel like I was doing something to contribute to her recovery. Well, I shouldn't say recovery, to her caretaking. And I got to kangaroo her for the first time when she was a week old. And it was amazing. Uh, I can still remember how it felt to hold her and just trying to like, not move and hold the CPAP so it wasn't pulling on her nose and my arm was so sore from holding this CPAP but I didn't care I was like we're so sweaty but this is the best moment ever you're gonna deal with the pain and unfortunately the mood got dampened a little because as the nurse went to put her back in her isolate She accidentally stepped on her pick line and snapped it. And so Lydia's little pick line was sticking out of her arm. And, you know, they had to do a bedside procedure to remove it and place a new one. And, oh, no, the trauma of that. It was such a beautiful moment to hold her and nothing will take that away, obviously. But it made me so nervous to kangaroo her again that's that is exactly what I was gonna say so there like this is the first time you did it and I can only imagine the next five times were so hard uh and you know obviously the nurse felt so bad I felt so bad it was a complete accident but yes I was so paranoid 
when they would go, you know, to take her and put her back and everyone knew what had happened. So everyone was very careful, but it took me quite a while to feel comfortable or confident doing it again. Oh, I, I can, t- I can totally imagine. That's one of those things that the nurses, they don't want to come and tell us about. I mean, they do, of course they want to tell us about it, but right. Like they come up and they're like, um, so, cause they know that my, my reaction's not, not going to, it's not like I'm going to be, well, yeah, no, I'm going to be mad. Um, like kind of in that when your child does something and you're like, oh my God, why? Um, like really this happened? Uh, and you know, sometimes it's, you're changing the dressing and the pick line slides out. Now it's not in good position anymore and we have to put another one in or whatever, whatever it is. Those things do happen. These are, there's lots of lines and wires and tubes, but kangaroo care is so important and the chance of that happening is so rare. You just happen to be the one that it happened to. I'm sorry. That's okay. You know, uh, everyone felt bad and thankfully everything was fine. Uh, nothing like that ever happened again during her stay. (laughs) Um, that was probably like, you know, the rockiest moment we had, I suppose. We fell very quickly into a NICU-centered routine, as I'm sure most families can relate to. Uh, what did your routine would... look like? Sure. So I was there every day, all day. I wasn't working. So I had a rare privilege of being there all the time. <laughs> And my husband would meet us there after work and would stay until, you know, around 7 p.m. usually and go home. And then I would come back early in the morning. The next day, I had about a 45 minute to our commute to get there. Um, I would have lunch in the hospital cafeteria every day. And every day, the nurse would be like, don't you want to go out and spend some time doing something other setting here? <laughs> and I just, I couldn't make myself leave. I, um, I guess I thought that my presence would, you know, somehow magically make her stay smoother. And I also just felt so guilty being out in the world, she was there and I didn't really know, like, what should I be doing? You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I remember I kept my bracelet on my hospital bracelet that matched hers for a very long time because I wanted, you know, someone at the grocery store to miss and to know, oh, she's a new mom. She doesn't have a baby with her, but she is a new mom. Or, you know, it was a link that I had to her. And um, it was just hard to, to be out and about seeing pregnant folks and new parents. And, you know, obviously, I don't know anyone else's situation, but at the time, it caused a lot of uh, guilt and jealousy and just negative feelings. And so I found I was happiest seeing with her often as I could possibly be there. Yeah. And and I think those are but, all totally great for people to hear. 
because it's it's real. I, I talk about how the NICU, you can feel jealous and lucky at the same time. You can feel angry and grateful at the same time. And, you know, we talk like we everybody talks a lot about self-care and how you need to take care of yourself as well. And I think we don't, you know, again, we don't know what self-care looks like for everybody else. And so for some people, it means leaving the hospital and go have a massage or a bubble bath or get a coffee with a friend and walk down the street. But for other people, it means let me just be in the NICU with my baby where I'm not constantly being reminded of the fact that I'm still supposed to be pregnant and wandering through the baby section at Target 2 because that's painful. That's hard. And it's okay to feel that. So if self-care for you is staying in the NICU for 12 hours every day, great. If self-care for you is coming in for four hours and taking care of your other three kids for the rest of the day and holding your life together, that's also good. If self-care is I'm going to work from the bedside so I protect my maternity leave for when my baby comes home, that's also good. Again, every routine is going to be different and they're all perfectly okay. I mean, you know, there there are a few that aren't good, right? Like, but yes. <laughs> Yeah, and you hit on such a good point, and that I recognize how privileged I was to be able to be there all day, every day. I thought a lot about what would this have looked like if it were our second child, and we had to split our time. You know, we met many families in there that were doing that, and it was just, you know, it was hard, and working moms. I saw many moms working next to their baby's bedsides and dads working next to their baby's bedside so that they would have that time when they came home with them. And that's just something that we didn't have to navigate. And I always felt very grateful for that. So she had a pretty smooth sailing course, like no major complications. You got to kangaroo... We start working on feedings. Tell me about towards the end of the hospital stay as you're getting ready to go home. Yeah, I think that was one of the most anxious parts. So when we got moved over to the step-down unit and we were in those final few weeks, it just felt like very high stakes. I remember I would be feeding her and watching the monitor like, okay, you can't drop your heart rate, Lydia, because then it'll reset your time and then you won't be able to come home. And just like, you know, the dreaded time bradycardia. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And also frustrating because there were days where she was just tired and she was like, nope, you're going to tube feed me today and you're going to have to live with it, mom. Um, And, you know, the process of finding what bottle do you like and um, learning how to do therapy with her for when she comes home and her exercises and also trying to get home ready while you're also in the NICU as thin as you can be. And 
thinking and realizing you are going to take this baby home and you are no longer going to have all this help. <laughs> it's going to be on you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the car seat test too. I remember feeling very anxious about that. And I, I feel like I really ramped the amount of times I would call in the middle of the night in those last couple of weeks. Like, did she eat all of her bottle? <laughs> and they probably were like, yes, yes, please. You know, you calling is not going to change whether or not she eats. But <laughs> it's like, just but no, but it will stakes. change how I think about things when I come in in the morning. So, yeah, it was just, it's different. And it's also, it's great because you get to be more, uh, I felt hands-on, at least in my experience, I could take her out of her crib and hold her whenever I wanted to. I didn't have to ask permission. I was allowed to pick my baby up. I remember sometimes I felt like a little bit like I was doing something naughty, like, oh, I can pick up my baby and hold her without asking permission. Yep. (laughs) This is illicit. (laughs) But it was just so nice. And I would start her cares right on the dot without needing to be prompted and um, it just, it, it was, a. you finally felt like you were getting, you were stepping more into that parenting role, or at least that's how I felt. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So what was it like when you did go home? I think lots of people are nervous about that. How did that go? It went well. However, I had an unnecessary amount of anxiety and I didn't even realize until again, I'm reflecting on the experience. I was very anxious. She came home without any oxygen, without a monitor. um, And I realized pretty quickly that I missed that monitor, just the reassurance of knowing she's breathing and everything is fine. Um, And then having to trust myself like you have been there taking care of her every day for three months you know how to take care of your child and also uh there was the bonding it I had you know done that emotional distancing without subconsciously Mm -hmm. and now it's okay it's just us you know and it feels like your relationship changes there too because in the NICU like time with her is a commodity and I just you know I want all of the time I can get with you and I have to share you with these other people but at home it's like it's just you me and daddy and most of the time it's just me and you in our winter isolation bubble <laughs> and um so it was a lot of learning for both of us and I remember I kept a log. I would take her temperature all the time, just like we did in the NICU, because I guess I was very, I just kept the NICU routine alive for a while, probably a good month or two. I would take her temperature diligently. I would write down how much she ate. Um, I feel like it, it took me a while to be like, okay, you can kind of relax now and do what works best for you guys. And I think it was confidence building for me. 
Yeah. Well, and you you were in the NICU all day, every day, and you still had to process through that confidence building after you got home. Um, so I think there's this misnomer that when your baby comes home from the NICU, your NICU stay is over. But I would argue that it's just the hospital stay is over and all of the processing that you didn't do when you were in the NICU starts to flood in because you're at home with just your baby and you have time to think and um, yeah, it's it's the new phase, uh, but the NICU is not over. Yes, and then you're navigating all of the appointments that you have to go to. I remember they scared the life out of me when we were getting discharged. They were like, okay, she needs follow-up care because of her ROP. And if you miss an appointment, they will call Child Protective Services on you. So you need to get to that appointment. And I was like, well, okay, we will be there. And I just remember like, it was all I could think about. I had like nightmares of missing this appointment and having my child taken away. <laughs> oh, but just, yes, that's, that was another part of it. It just, you know, running to doctor's appointments. Yeah. And yeah. And again, she came home in November. So we were supposed to, you know, be in our little germ-free bubble, which I took very seriously. I would go so far as to change my clothes when I came home from the grocery store. If I went, my husband would be home in the evening and that would be my outing, like go to the grocery store or something. And I would change my clothes when I came back. I was so paranoid of germs. Again, my anxiety uh, showing itself. So (laughs) I I will validate that change of clothes here just for a moment. Um, My twins were born in March not I mean you know they're five now but and my older daughter at the time went to daycare and it was a really late RSV and flu season and I wanted my older daughter to still go she was we bumped her down to part-time but she still went a couple days a week and at the back door I had a laundry basket a bunch of hand sanitizer and water wipes and she would come in the door and I would strip her down and she would get a water wipe bath and some hand sanitizer and then she could come into the house because it's not just if she has a runny nose but she's at preschool and they're germ infested booger launchers right like that's just what toddlers are I mean they're adorable booger launchers but nonetheless that's what they do and I did not want that stuff on her clothes so probably you didn't need to change your clothes, but I will validate that as a really very good way to prevent RSV flu and now COVID when you have older children coming home from preschool when you have a new baby in the house. Probably you weren't rolling on the floor in Target and at the grocery store and wiping your nose on your sleeve and your friends were wiping their nose on your sleeve and Uh, sharing toys that were getting wiped and put in people's faces. So probably you didn't need to change your clothes, but 100% for sure, people who have booger launcher toddlers and a new preemie at home, you can strip your toddler down and wipe them down before they come into your house. I fully approve of that method. I used it myself. That is great information. (laughs) I appreciate the validation. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) So uh, we're going to jump forward just a little bit. How is your daughter doing now? She is 
so amazing. I think I went into her NICU stay with no expectations, or at least I tried really hard not to have expectations. I didn't allow myself to imagine what she would be like when she was older or, you know, going to school or anything. So she is amazingly athletic. She loves to try new things all the time. She's constantly wanting to try a new sport or join a new club at school. She is so outgoing. And I was often told, you know, she'll probably be a little shy. A lot of preemies are. And nope, not Lydia. She knows everybody's name. She'll say hi to everyone. She doesn't, you know, everyone is a friend. Um, she, if I, if I had, I, I just couldn't have even imagined who she is today mm-hmm. sitting, staring at her in that isolate. Yeah. I would have had no idea. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned at the beginning where the doctor, the MFM came in and said, next time we can prevent this. And going home with a diagnosis of unexplained preterm delivery and in the back of your head, you you have this, this doctor's word and, you know, eventually you get far enough out from your NICU stay that you're like, well, maybe we want to have another baby. Tell me when in this kind of now Lydia's home and you've got this little thing in the back of your head. When did you start to learn about and hear about incompetent cervix? Sure. So I was not sure that I would ever want a second child after that. But we got pregnant. Uh, Lydia had been home a month and a half and I got pregnant. I was very mad. I was actually hoping I had the flu. Uh-huh. I remember throwing the little pea stick at my husband. I was so angry. This is Sorry your to fault, my son. Babe. I love you dearly. <laughs> right. Apparently it doesn't take two. Yeah. So <laughs> I was and I think it, you know, it was anger because I was afraid. Yeah. And that was the emotion that was displaying. Right. The fear drove so, the anger. Yeah. So it was confirmed by the OBGYN that I was pregnant um, and I was immediately placed in the high risk category. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have any firm diagnosis and I never really, I didn't at that time think about that sheet that I had read about the incompetent cervix diagnosis. So we went into it with, we don't know what's going to happen. And they, my providers said the best course of action would be to do progesterone shots in the second trimester weekly, and also to start weekly transvaginal ultrasounds with the MFM to check your cervical length. Those are so much fun, so, right? Oh, yeah. I, I, I had them. You don't even care after a while. No, exactly. I had them every two weeks with the twins because I had a cervical tear with my 
first pregnancy and pushed for four hours and then ended up with an urgent c-section uh i would take lydia with me every time too here we go lydia let's go check on the new baby and again i think i had a lot of like detachment from that pregnancy too because i just had no idea what was going to happen this time you know am i going to have to spread spread my time between Lydia who just got here and this new baby so that was interesting and everything looked great up until the 22 week mark and I was about ready to be done with these bi-weekly ultrasounds and I had started having that lower back pain again around 18 weeks, but I knew I was getting checked bi-weekly. So that kind of calmed my anxiety about that. And um, I was again, very sick. And so pretty weak and, you know, my day was spent keeping Lydia occupied, but I wasn't like super active and at the 22 week appointment, my cervical length was found to have shortened past the point of safety or what they were comfortable with. And the doctor came in and he checked and he said to me, you have an incompetent cervix. And I remember my jaw just fell. I was like, what, you know, what did you just say to me? And he must have realized it because he kind of backtracked and was like, a weak cervix. It's a weak cervix. It <laughs> exists on a spectrum. <laughs> okay. You know, and uh, he said, you need an emergent cerclage. We'll get this scheduled. And the next day I had a uh, successful cerclage placement. And after that, you know, I kept up with the progesterone for a while and some more ultrasounds just to check on that. Uh, but ultimately the cerclage was removed at 34 weeks, I believe. And my son was born at 38 weeks. Wow. And it was, you know, again, an outcome I was not anticipating. I was like trying to prepare myself for another NICU stay. And I just couldn't believe it that he was still in there after the cerclage <laughs> was taken out. Yeah. No, that is definitely a success, a successful cerclage. So he said, the doctor says you have an incompetent cervix. And you're like, wait, what? And then you get this cerclage. Talk to me about when you hear that, what does it make you think about your first pregnancy and delivery? Because I can, I'm not going to say what I would be thinking. I would like to know what you were thinking. Yeah, it was immediately guilt. Oh, this is my fault. Oh, this is truly something that could have probably been prevented if I had pushed harder, if I had said, no, these symptoms are really worrying me. I need you to check this out. It made me feel 
like I had failed Lydia. Even though she was there and she was thriving and she was doing so well, it still made me feel so guilty. You know, we have this societal idea that women are meant to be these natural mothers and that we are built to get pregnant and have full-term healthy babies. And we know that that is not just the reality for many, many people. But at the time, I didn't really have good frameworks for navigating this experience. And it wasn't until, so I had Lydia in between my undergraduate degree. I had started at a different college and meant to transfer to another before I got pregnant with Lydia. And I was so sick that I decided to wait. And so I finished my undergraduate degree uh, when I, well, I started it when I was pregnant with my son. So my second pregnancy and finished a year later and I was studying communication studies and I started learning about narrative theory and these other tools that really helped me understand or reimagine my experience experiences. And then I decided to go to grad school where I again studied communication studies. And I learned even more information and new skills and tools that I could use to analyze not only this experience, but where it sits in the larger medical realm and also sociocultural world. And I have re-examined these events so many times and it's always changing, it's ever evolving. And that was when I was finally able to say, okay, I know that I felt offended by this term, but I couldn't really articulate why or what was happening here. And now with these new tools, I'm able to explore this. And I wrote my master's thesis on the term incompetent cervix. I conducted critical discourse analysis of many, 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 many articles, <laughs> as well as uh, reputable websites where patients would go to find information on this diagnosis if they were Googling. And I was able to situate this term within not only the medical realm, but again, kind of the cultural, where did this term come from? What impact is this having? And I think there were three findings from my research that especially helped me understand my experience and also how this relates to the larger picture. The one, or I'm sorry, the first, I found this discursive trope as doctors being positioned as heroes, which 
not necessarily a negative thing, right? We love doctors. We're so grateful. I would not have two healthy children without the medical teams that were providing care. Uh, but when you are analyzing the literature and the discourse surrounding this particular diagnosis, we have women or birthing patients being talked about in a very passive manner. Uh, they're called a challenge. They are never included in the conversation. Uh, and it's, you know, it's this incompetent cervix that needs fixing from the doctor or, you know, this woman will never have a child. And it just play, it feels like it places the blame on the woman. The fact that you feel guilty about it, I, I get it. What, what did you do to feel guilty about? Nothing. You, you, like, you didn't do anything wrong. And you have this label that says your body is terrible and failed and you failed your child. Therefore, dot, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. When in actuality, you did nothing wrong. Yeah. And that's, you know, not something that's talked about in the literature. It's not acknowledged, um, except there was one article in all of the research that I did. I found an article from 19, oh my gosh, the 1980s, where the doctor, the provider writing the article said, you know, hey, this term might be negatively impacting the parents. And then it was, you know, never brought up again, essentially. Yeah. And another thing, another discursive trope that I found was just the silencing of women. Again, they're talked about very passively and there's no, hey, let's include some patient experience here to see what's going on. And Another thing that caused great frustration while I'm doing this work was reading over and over again, this is understudied. (laughs) We need to do more to understand this. But it never seemed to take a further step. And that was very frustrating. Well, and it's it's interesting that you say that the women are passively talked about and silenced because... You know, I mean, I've done now quite a few interviews with moms who have delivered prematurely. And, you know, your most common reasons for that are going to be preeclampsia or an, an incompetent cervix, right? So I've, I've talked to a lot of moms who have gone through this, this experience of a premature delivery and an incompetent cervix. And it's not uncommon, or, or I should say, it's almost universal for the moms to talk about, I had this back pain. I was feeling this fluid. I just didn't quite feel right. And I was told everything was fine. This is normal in pregnancy. And so 
you know, I mean, a lot of people right now are talking about disparities in healthcare and how maternal outcomes in this country are not as good as they should be. And I think that part of that is this silencing and kind of discounting of of what people are feeling. And and I think it's so pervasive that, you know, go back to me having preterm contractions at 32 weeks, I don't want to go up to labor and delivery. I don't want to be a burden on somebody. I'm sure this is just normal and I'm overreacting. You know, like this is a problem with me. I have this back pain and they're telling me that it's normal to have back pain. Okay, well, I'm I must not know what it feels like to be pregnant. I must not be handling pregnancy as well as other people. When there really is something there and I I love that you're talking about this passive way that we talk about moms and this silencing and this kind of yeah yeah you're you're fine you're fine right because it's just not okay and until we really talk about it we can't change the conversation to give people more of a voice and know that it's okay to say hey look you know actually I want you to do something more about my back pain and you need to listen to me and you need to do something here, not just silence me and tell me that I'm overreacting. Sorry, that's yes. my soapbox. Sorry. No, I loved it. I'm <laughs> clapping for you. Um, yeah, so and the embodied experiences of the pregnant patient are just not valued the way that they should be. And it was so evident in all of the literature that I was reading. And, you know, it's not, oh, this woman, she just advocated and she would not back down until they gave her a transvaginal ultrasound. And because of her advocating for herself, she got a surclage and made it full term. It's never that. It's they caught, the provider caught, the medical team caught you know, that her cervix was shortening and they placed a cerclage and had a healthy outcome. There's no woohoo, mom, way to go. Yeah, way to push for what you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And when you were talking about not wanting to be a burden, I remember when I was on my way into the hospital with my first pregnancy with those small contractions, I remember when the monitor showed that they were actually occurring, I felt validated and a small part of me was like, ha, see, I'm not crazy. I'm having contractions. Ha ha. And it's like, why, why do we feel that way? Well, dominant ideologies like to perpetuate that women can't be trusted, that we're hysteric, that we're dramatic, that We need to default to these others who know what's best for us or know better than we do. Right. And we are made to second guess ourselves. Yeah, constantly, constantly second guess ourselves. Yeah. Well, and, and I also think that there's this assumption, both on a societal level and on a provider level, that you get pregnant and you have a healthy baby. And 
yes, 90% of the time, that is what happens. But it is not what always happens. And we need to do better at listening to the people who are coming in with symptoms that can mimic what other people who are having a healthy pregnancy can feel and and not just poo-poo them and say, no, it's fine, right? Like if you come at it from everybody who gets pregnant has a healthy baby, you're going to miss what some of these more subtle signs are. Whereas if you're coming at it from the standpoint of, it's my job to advocate for my patients and it's my job to advocate for my moms to make sure that they aren't having one of these more rare complications, you're not going to minimize their experience. Yeah. And I am a white woman. I know that the experiences of black women and colored women are different than what I go through. And they are at higher risk than white women for having this diagnosis. And also they are treated differently, generally speaking, by medical providers. And so this is an even more important or critical need for those individuals. Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, your experience your experience is your experience and, and I don't want to in any way downplay your experience um, or compare it to somebody else's like that's one of my big things is don't compare your experience to somebody else's because your how you feel about your experience shouldn't be better or worse based on what somebody else went through um, but you can imagine a scenario where you called saying you were having these abdominal contractions and the person said, you know, it's fine. Why don't you drink some juice and drink some water and take a bath? I'm sure you're just stressed out from working a long shift, right? And now that same mom comes in and instead of being dilated to three to four centimeters, and being able to successfully delay delivery for five days and get beta-methasone on board and use mag and and be able to get the terbutaline on board, five days makes a big difference from 24 and change to 25 and change. Like, I don't know that people can really underestimate the difference those five days made. And if they if they had downplayed or blew off your symptoms even more. I can imagine a scenario where if you had been a woman of color, black or Hispanic or non-English speaking, um, that now they would have, you wouldn't have gotten it caught at three centimeters and you would have showed up at eight centimeters and your baby is already coming out and you don't get beta-methasone on board and you don't have as good of an outcome because you don't have the prenatal setup to help your baby. That is a very real possibility and a very real scenario. And I have heard, I have seen that happen in my profession, in my career, in patients, and talk to moms with that same thing. So, yeah, I think that's an important point as well. I basically see the culmination of my experience and the research that I've done as a starting point 
and a call to action. We need more research to better understand what's happening here and to incorporate patient perspective. And we need good protocols in place. So a mom comes in and tells you she's having weird back pain. Okay, what do we do for her? What do we do to address this? How are we going to treat these patients when they come in and tell us these things? How can we encourage folks to tell us about the symptoms that they're having so that they aren't feeling like, oh, I'm going to be a burden or, oh, I am just crazy. Um, and, also, and just a little bit to, it's not even playing devil's advocate, but just a little bit to say the downside of investigating everybody with low back pain is the cost of healthcare. Although I would argue that a transvaginal ultrasound, you have the machine sitting right there. It, this should not cost $300. It's just part of your stay, but that's a whole nother podcast and a whole nother discussion, right? So the, the cost of, of healthcare to over-evaluate all these things. And the other thing is the unnecessary anxiety that now because we're going after every little twinge and tweak that somebody feels now maternal anxiety is going up and up and up so there there is a cost to doing more investigation and so there is a balance that gets played out between trying not to normalize everything and trying not to over investigate everything and that is a hard line to to walk sometimes absolutely and i know that even Though, you know, to me, transvaginal ultrasounds became second nature. I know that that is not the case for many folks and that they dread them and they don't want them. And for them, you know, that this would not be something that sounds like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I would love to have this test done to see what's going on. So, yeah, again, it, it just goes to we need more research. We need to figure out what is the best way to handle this. And how can we do a better job of listening to our, or giving confidence to patients to share what's going on? Right. Yeah. So that's point one. Uh, doctors as heroes and silencing women. What's the second point? Okay. Yes. One was doctors as heroes. The second was silencing women. Okay. The third trope is that of the good mother. So I don't think I actually stated my thesis title. It was the incompetent, in quotes, cervix and the, in quotes, good mother. And it explored the juxtaposition of these things and the sociocultural beliefs that lead to these expectations. And so basically my third trope demonstrated that, again, if you're going to be a good mother, you are one that will protect your child. First of all, you have to be a good woman, right? A good woman is going to get pregnant easily and have a smooth pregnancy and have a healthy full-term baby. And so you're already messing up here. Yeah. (laughs) And then the, (laughs) the good mother will do anything in her power to protect her child. And the literature 
the information coming at you when you receive this diagnosis is saying just the opposite. Well, geez, this fetus is not even in the world yet and I'm already letting it down. I'm already a failure. And, you know, then the outcome is different for all these folks and mine was a very fortunate outcome and I still had a lot of grief and guilt to grapple with. Uh, I think I wasn't able to tell Lydia's story without crying until probably two or three years ago. It still felt that fresh. And so if the outcome had been different, I don't know if I would have been able to carry out any of this research or continue talking about it and reopening that scab over and over and over again. But I think that shows how important this is to me. And another little anecdote too. So this is not thought or hasn't been proven to be hereditary. My mom had four pregnancies. They all went full term. We were all healthy. We still are, thank God. But I was the first one of us to have get pregnant and have a child. My older sister, she uh, had IVF and me having a history of this diagnosis did not automatically make her a candidate for biweekly transvaginal ultrasounds, but she had another factor that referred her to an MFM. And so she was getting cervical checks biweekly. And she called me one day, she was 21 weeks and she was having some strange to her vaginal discharge that she was describing as watery. And I was like, you need to call your nurse and you need to tell them that you want an ultrasound done. And they wouldn't bring her in. They said, you have an ultrasound scheduled for next week. We will see you then. So she went to that appointment and the receptionist tried to turn her away. They tried to say, the doctor said, you're 22 weeks now. Everything has been fine. You don't need an ultrasound today. And she said, no, you are doing this ultrasound. She went in and she was two centimeters dilated, water's bulging. And they weren't even sure if they would be able to place a cerclage, but they were able to, thank God, and she delivered at full term. So, but now just imagine our, if if, she, if you hadn't had your experience, her doctor would have said, "You don't need this. Go home." And again, we would have missed it, and she would have shown up in labor at four to five centimeters and missed her opportunity to get the cerclage because we aren't listening. Yeah, yes. Uh, it will never cease to amaze me that they tried to turn her away at the front desk. So that further highlights the need for more research on different levels, you know, again, protocols and 
investigating, is there a hereditary link or do my sister and I both share some other common denominator uh, with this diagnosis? There's just so much left to be explored and it's not a new diagnosis. This research has been going on for a very long time. And you know, thankfully we have technologies to help women carry to full term and, you know, fairly simple technology, but it's just the figuring out and, okay, how are we going to be better at listening to patients? And, and, it's, and for some people too, they don't have any symptoms. So right. is there anything we can do for those folks? Right. Other than try to prevent it with a subsequent pregnancy. Yeah. Cause if you don't have any symptoms, it makes it so hard. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. then where did the term early cervical opening come from? Did you, did that come before you were doing all your research or kind of through that process of trying to change this terminology from something so negative to something that describes the process instead of being judgmental? Or where did it come from? That was so hard. <laughs> so... I wrote my entire thesis. I was in front of my committee presenting it to them. And one of my committee members was like, okay, so then what do we call it? And I really did not want to take that on by myself. I was like, I think it would be great to get a different group of people together, more people with the diagnosis, more medical prof professionals, etc. This feels like a big responsibility to rename on my own. But they're like, well, we've got to start calling it something different if we're going to make change happen. And yes, that it was a focus on, okay, how can we take the onus off the individual and just describe what's happening here? And that seemed like the best way that I could think of on to, to describe the diagnosis. And I, I also test Google it all the time and it immediately comes up with literature and information on incompetent cervix. So if people use this term in Google, they're going to get the information that they need and it you know, isn't going to take them somewhere else completely. So I always say I'm totally open to feedback, particularly on that name. But this is the the way we should be moving. Yeah, no, I, I like it because it's not. It, it just literally is descriptive. It's like you have a cellulitis, you have a red arm, right? It's not you. I can't even think of something negative to say about us. Like you would never say your arm is incompetent because it has a cellulitis, right? Like let's just describe what's, what's happening. You have a red arm, you have early cervical opening, right? It's neutral. It's descriptive. It's non-judgmental. Uh, I think, yeah, I think there's some good things about it. We would never hear, Oh, you have an incompetent penis, sir. Right. <laughs> No, you just it's hear impotent here. Yeah. It's tied to power. Yeah. It's, it's tied to power. Um, it's here. Just take this little blue pill. It'll, it'll be fine. What are your next steps and what are you 
hoping to accomplish? Yeah, so we talked early on on how influential social media is, especially if you are newly diagnosed or just seeking information. What is this diagnosis? Or I know someone who is going through this and you start to Google or scour social media. And back in 2012, I couldn't really find anything on social media like there is now. And after you know, I published my thesis, I was like, okay, what can I do now? How can I get this information into the hands of the people that it needs to go? And I started the Instagram early cervical opening and it kind of felt like giving birth for a third time. <laughs> and I connect I started to pretty quickly connect with other individuals in these groups that run either awareness campaigns or support groups and they hadn't really thought about this before that was part of why I did this research in communication studies they talk about gendered medical terminology it you know, I, I wasn't the first one to do this. That's out there. And no one has talked about this term. Not many people are out there making noise about this. No one in academia. Yeah. So I started making those connections in the community. And that's how I um, wound up working with the incompetent cervix awareness campaign. So, uh, kind of trying to work together on, you know, all of these different goals and also just trying to reach people in the medical community because I can, you know, talk to comm studies people and they'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. But, you know, it needs to go further than that to actually get some change made. Yeah. I I, I love it, actually. Um, I'm, I, I'm going to start to use early cervical opening instead of incompetent cervix. And I'm doing a podcast about the importance of labels and how we label things. So um, in the NICU, we have wimpy white boys. What a horrible thing to say. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's so horrible. And then, you know, but then you also have terms like disability and disabled and people feel really strongly about which way to go anyway so I, I'm going to be doing a, a podcast upcoming around the same time that yours comes out specifically talking about this exact issue and the importance of words and the importance of labels and how we can look at them and how we can get past them and when is it appropriate and when is it not and what do we do about all of that? So I'm just really grateful that you are sharing your story and in this space and that you created your um, early cervical opening on Instagram and, and getting the word out. I just love it. I want to say thank you for all of the wonderful work you are doing. I am always so thankful of uh the NICU providers and nurses and other staff 
And I will never forget those folks that helped support us during our stay. And the work you do is so impactful. And I'm so excited for your book that you're working on. And your podcast is phenomenal. If this were around when I was a new NICU parent, I would have been a devout follower. <laughs> I am now too, but it would have had a different meaning at that yes, point in my life. Would have, so yeah. it's such a great resource. <laughs> well, thank you. So thank you. And thank you for talking to me about this. Uh, I obviously enjoy it and am very passionate about seeing it through. So yeah, no, I mean, I, I can tell you're I'm very so grateful to have listening it. ears. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I'm just really grateful that um, we got connected and that you agreed to come on the podcast and talk to me. I'm really excited to get this episode out. I think it's got such good information and you describe really well what a lot of people are feeling. And I, I think we need to normalize those feelings and people need to know that it's okay to feel that way and and we can move forward too you keep saying it walt no podcast